there's block practice, random practice, competitive practice. And pretty much, you know, 98% of golfers on the planet just skip the, the, you know, the random and the competitive. And they, they're on the range and they're hitting 7-iron after 7-iron all the time. And then they get on the course and they don't hit a 7-iron until the sixth hole. The question I always say to people is, does your practice replicate what you do on the, on, on the golf course? Today we are joined by Ryan Mokey. Ryan is a former top-tier rugby league player from New Zealand who took his talents to Australia and played there before turning to golf. When Ryan focused his passion on golf, he became a golf instructor and became PGA Australia certified, Trackman Level 2 certified, TPI Level 2 golf coach and junior golf coach certified, as well as a number of other certifications. Ryan coaches both amateurs and professionals, and has shouted some of the top coaches, including Tony Ruggiero, Chris Como, James Seekman, Dana Dahlquist, and Jeff Smith. Also, Ryan has developed the Performance Practice ebook, which you can find on his website, ryanmokegolf.com.au. If you're not based in Australia, you can also still take lessons with Ryan on Skillist. And I, again, I appreciate you joining us. I know that uh, you're from New Zealand. You played rugby league. What are you doing? teaching golf? Yeah. So, I mean, my, my backstory is uh, I, I got into rugby league. I think it was like the age of six. I've always played golf. My, my grandfather was a, was a golfer and, um, I, you know, I was in the backyard knocking around the, the plastic sticks as we all did. And, but I played rugby league, but that was my main sport. And yeah, I was, I was pretty good at it. I was kind of number one half back in New Zealand. Um, yeah, made all the rep teams I needed to in New Zealand. And, I th- I can't remember the age. Might have been around fifteen or so. I, I was asked to. Um, I was asked. You know, I'm, I had a manager at the time, and he said, "Look, I'm going to go over to Australia and live there. Did you want to come over and and play in Australia?" And yeah, being fifteen, I thought that was pretty cool. I I didn't think of my friends. I didn't think of my family at the time. I just, just went, "Yeah, that's cool." So I think it was like uh, it was October two thousand and eight. I moved over to. Uh, Australia and did two months of training just trying to get like in the best shape possible ready for the season and um, did about two years of of playing rugby league in Australia and yeah it was it was funny I I had a moment where the the rep training was on um, and I didn't get on the team bus I just the, the boys are laughing at me they were just going you know what are you doing like this is a joke so boys I'm not I'm not I'm not going I'm done and um, it was at that time, probably a year before that, I started to really enjoy golf. I started to like, you know, want to go to a golf course and everything I wanted to do was golf. So um, I had this part-time job in, in, like, a, in like a pub slash tavern and we'd, I, I, yeah, I'd work the Saturday night shift and we'd finish around two, or th- two o'clock in the morning, something like that. And I'd have mates that we go and play on a on a Sunday morning at like four four thirty a.m. So I, I just didn't sleep. I was just like perfect. This um, I just got up and basically went and played golf. And I could play I could play all day. And that's when my love for golf kind of started truly. Um, but like I said, I, I played since I was a kid. So I've always swung a club. Um, I've always done the golf stuff. It just was my number two sport, not number one. So 
I didn't do any junior stuff growing up. I didn't play any junior tournaments. I didn't get any formal coaching. Um, so I'm kind of a self-made golfer. So so basically, once I decided to do golf, I kind of took a year off um, after school and thought, right, I'm going to try try play. Realized very, very quickly that I wasn't cut out to play for a living. Um, so I, I was like, all right, well, how do I stay in the industry but not play? So I, that's when I did my, my, my traineeship. Um, didn't get in my first year, so I actually played horrendously, um, you know, that, that first year. So I had to, I got knocked back and thought, oh, I'll, I'll keep trying. I'll try again next year. Anyway, got in, did my three years. And then, um, yeah, that's after the three years, that's when I was, I was dedicated to coaching. Realized that coaching was the pathway I wanted to be on. And, um, yeah, that's kind of my sporting story. But like I said, I, I've played everything growing up. I can, there's not one sport that I yeah, that I suck at essentially, right? It's just one of those things where, yeah, yeah you're just a, an all-round athlete, and I think that's what helped golf. That's what helped me get to to be a decent player in golf um, without too much formal coaching early on. What were some of the things that drew you from rugby to golf, in golf specifically, or uh, in rugby specifically that you may not have liked? It? I think I ended up. This is quite ironic, right? But I think I ended up not playing rugby league or, or quitting rugby league um dude I, I mean i look back on it now and i think very much an early specialization sport i mean i started when i was six i got to that 16 17 mark and i was like well you know i'm starting to get over it which you see a lot of junior golfers do nowadays right like they get into it at age three and and by the time they're 14 they're done so i'm always careful with parents when i'm you know I'm talking with juniors um, any junior i teach with parents to say look Make sure they're doing like a bunch of other sports as well. Don't just don't just focus on golf itself. Um, but but the I think the reason why obviously I had the love for golf more so than the rugby league part. But every training for rugby league was the same. It was the same boring stuff that I worked on when I was a six year old, and then when I was an eighteen year old. So and I, I, the reason I say it's ironic for golf is golf is repetitive. We've got to do the same thing. We've got to focus on basics. We've got to make sure all that's in, in place first. But, you know, I, I made a bunch of rep teams, you know, in New Zealand and, and it was the same drills as club. And I was just like, what are we doing? Like, why are we doing this? We're good enough players to not, you know, not need to do this, if that makes sense. You're catching a ball, you're running in a straight line, just all that stuff. And I think, I think that's what kind of drew me away from it, ultimately, that and the love that I had for golf more so than rugby league. So when it came to deciding to teach golf, can you talk, walk us through a little bit about uh, what the PGA system is over there? I think Tim Stewart, who we talked to, has gone through it. And obviously there's a PAT, like you mentioned. But from what it sounded like to me, it's a little more intensive maybe than the U.S. system is. Yeah, so during my time, um, we yeah, it's three years and you've got to do a bunch of assignments, a heap of playing. Um, you had to, yeah, you had to play to an average. I think at, at the time that I was a trainee, it was five and a half over par. So not hard, you know, like if, if you, if you can play golf somewhat you know, decently, you can definitely pass quite easily. Um, but you know, that, that's it, that's at different courses every week as well. Um, whereas, you know, I think a lot of players, they, you know, oh, five and a half, that's easy. Well, it's easy at your home course that you know of, but, you know, different conditions, different golf courses, all that kind of stuff. Um, but look, 
I think nowadays it's a lot easier. Nowadays it's actually, in my opinion, too easy here in Australia. Like there's a, I think you can pass once out of your three years now, whereas every year when I did it, you had to pass every year. So it just kind of reset. Whereas now you can fail the first year, fail the second year and pass the third year and you complete it. And I'm just, to me, that's not, yeah, I feel like they're sometimes just giving out certificates now. It's more just a numbers game. Whereas, and even even so back in the day, like before I did it, um, I think the, the pros before me would be saying they're giving them out because the, the playing average is so easy. Whereas, yeah, I think back in the day they had to they had to play off. It was uh, less than three and a half over par. The next year was like two over par, and then the, the year after was one. So it actually got harder and harder. Um, whereas now, I think yeah, a lot of the a lot of the um, a lot of the golf industry now is definitely geared towards the management side. At least here in Australia, it is. It's not really focusing on much coaching, which is a bit disappointing. Um, but yeah, so I think I think there's a definitely there's definitely a big area to improve on in the coaching realm. And I think that's, yeah, and that's partly why I did the trip to the States that I did because it was just couldn't learn from enough people here. Perfect. Yeah. And that is a perfect transition as far as your trip to the States. I heard about it on, on another podcast. We'll link to both of those in the show notes, but you came over to the U S and got to shadow a bunch of really premier coaches across the different genres who did you follow and tell us a little bit more about that trip yeah so i mean at the time i was i was coaching here for yeah i was at at the club i was at for about six years um doing doing all the normal club stuff that you've got to do and i just had that feeling it was about time that we once covid was finished i was like look i i want to go and see what the states has to offer i want to go and see the best coaches over there I'm always talking to them. I'm always messaging them and watching them coach um, online. And I'm just, I'm like, man, I, I want to go and stand there. I want to see what the secret is over there. So I had a player, or have a player, who's currently in um, second stage of Q school um, for Corn Ferry at the moment. And we were trying to Monday, uh, basically he went over as well. And, and he was trying to Monday for PGA Tour events. I, obviously, when I was helping him, I was helping him. But then on the off weeks, I would go and shadow these coaches. So I, I ended up spending a, a uh, some time with Dana Dalquist. Um, God, I, I, there's so many to name. Uh, Tony Ruggiero and his crew, uh, Preston Combs, uh, Chris Como, Alan Tyrrell. Probably going to forget a bunch, but J- James Seekman was another one. Got to hang out with Bryson for the day at um, at the Live event. I was listening to a podcast. I think you said you hung out some with Jeff Smith as well. Yeah, Jeff. So, yep, Jeff Smith. Yep, uh, at, at Memphis there. So. Um, God, I'm thinking of other coaches. I've probably missed a couple there, but it was it was a really cool time, and and you know one I'll never uh, never forget. And it was just great to see what the what the best coaches in America and and you know, in particular you know, PGA Tour coaches what they do, how they operate. You got to ask them a bunch of questions, and um, you know it's, it's obviously done really good for my career. Like to to look back on that in ten or twenty years time and say, you know, I was so glad I did that wasn't a cheap trip it's um it spent more money than i thought i would but you know like the end of the day you'll get that back and and it was um it was definitely a great a great experience so yeah it was it was really enjoyable i understand that it's one of those things when you spend money on something like that uh especially when you're young like us it's always painful going through it like right now i have my car in the shop and i'm like man like Oh, it's going to cost me so much. Uh, but at the end of the day, not dying on the road is nice. And it's the same thing in our careers. Getting that extra experience goes a long way 
and getting to know those people too. One of the things that you said um, in the podcast was James Seekman delivered a masterclass on how to teach. And so I was interested in, as far as from your perspective, what does a, a good lesson look like? You have the student come to you. What is that? What does that good lesson look like? Not just the first one, but you know, the second one, the third one is progression as you get to know the student better. And then also what did you learn on that trip from those instructors about giving lessons? Yeah, so I mean, using James Seekman as an example, it's it was so clinical in regards to like just how he would conduct a lesson. That that yeah, whether it was an hour lesson or a three hour lesson, you know, talking to the student at the start about what they're there for, what their goals are, what they're wanting to achieve, um, and then from there, you know, go out to the range, film their swing. Number one, no, yeah, we're not giving information at the start. It's it's like look, let let me have a look at what you do, film it do all the necessary things you have to do. And the best thing he had this, like, yeah, he had this teaching room, which is, which is a massive benefit. So you're not outside with the iPad and the sun's blaring and it's hot. Go back in the teaching room, chuck it on the computer and say, look, you know, here's, here's the issues you're facing. Uh, here's what I can see as to why. And here's what we're going to do to, to, to help you with these issues. Um, you know, and obviously in that environment, he's got a mirror there. So you can do some mirror work inside. And, you know, half an hour has gone by and we haven't done anything. You know, we haven't beat balls on the range, which is which is amazing because that's the learning process. That's what has to be done, right? Like so many people want these quick fire, like, oh, yeah, happy with my backswing. It's like, well, there's no context in, in what that question was, right? So, you know, so then, then you'd go out and, and there was, you know, there was drills and, and take your time. And the one thing that he was really good at was was having the student completely understand and own the the change that they were trying to make so that the student would understand exactly why they were trying to make that change how they were going to make it um but the best thing the best thing that james did in my opinion was he didn't stay in that training environment for too long so it's one thing i'm really big on as well as once the once the brain computes right this is what i have to do then it's about going and doing your, your your variable stuff, your random practice, your competitive stuff. So, you know, he would have only stayed in that drill block practice area for seven to 10 minutes. And then it was about, you know, obviously James is a short game coach. So now it's about, right, how do we apply what we've just done into rough environments, into short flag environments, um, poor lies, good lies. Um, so you, you're now adapting the, the the newfound kind of technique or movement that you're trying to do not only that but the, the new technique or the new movement is now put under some duress right it's not just i've got 50 balls so it doesn't matter if i thin one over the green like now it actually somewhat matters if that makes sense so that you know what, what i take away from lessons like that is the student has gone through this complete circle of exactly what they need to do to get better um yeah, he wrote notes on a bit of paper for them. Yeah, James is quite old school. He's not using any any of the um yeah, any of the apps that you could do with yeah, you could do that with, but um yeah, he'd write notes and he'd he'd give it to the student and say, you know, this was the poor movement, this is the movement we need to do, here's how to practice. Um and then and then they'd go away and work on it and whether they come back in a week or two weeks. Um I'm not I'm not too sure like what his preference are. I think he just lets the student kind of go. And if they need some more help going back, then 
um, then he'll have them back. But yeah, it was it was really good to watch. And, and look, that was for eight to ten hours of the day. It was just so good to watch. Um, so yeah, it really really makes you think about how you conduct a lesson. Um, he wasn't. He did it his way. He didn't. I, I guess conform to the student saying, "I want to be fixed now." He he was like, "Look," and and the the best thing was, um, you know, at the start of the lesson, if someone was like, "Yeah, I'm trying to do this, and I've watched this, and I've done do," he would just say, "Right, you want to work with me? You stop that right now. You get off the hamster wheel. You st- like that ain't happening here, right?" Um, which is awesome because uh, I uh, yeah, and obviously he's a very big figure in the golf instruction world, and he's earned the right to be able to to do that um and if you if you don't want to listen to james seekman well go find someone else right other than james seekman who would you say are your biggest influences or role models when it comes to coaching as a whole and then when it comes to certain aspects of coaching like communication or just information yeah so if, i mean yeah i, I didn't Obviously, I've, I've gained some relationships in the States and, and I, yeah, I was able to watch those guys um, for, for a few days. But I guess the, the people that are on my phone that I'm messaging literally every day, they're probably sick of me messaging. But Alex Riggs has become a really good uh, kind of mentor of mine. I bounce a lot of ideas off him. Um, Stephen Giuliano in Singapore, he's, he's been one that I talk to a lot as well. Um, Matt Ballard's another one who I is an Aussie who who I talk to quite a bit. Um, Singapore national coach, and I mean, you know, I've I've got I've got a guy in New Zealand, Stuart Thompson, who's a who's a PGA member as well. He's a good friend of mine. When I was when I was a kid, kind of the only real coaching I got as a kid was him. Um, yeah, helped me with a few things, but but yeah, those would be the the three main ones now that I'm talking to a lot. Um, but I've, I've spoken to so many coaches throughout my years of teaching and and I think it's essential just to bounce ideas off coaches and and if they're, they're happy to give back to, yeah, and respond to your messages, then, then fantastic. Um, but I also respect that if they don't, that's perfectly okay as well. I get it. I get that everyone's busy and, um, yeah, but I'm obviously thankful for those guys to, to be in my corner and to have access to them, um, kind of whenever I need to, to have a chat about coaching or, the business of coaching. Um, so yeah, they're really good guys to bounce ideas off. So I want to kind of move into how you specifically give lessons and something that I want to ask everybody that is coaching is, are there a set of principles that you um, want to instill in every player or does that move from player to player? Yeah. So, I mean, ideally, right. Like I know this can't happen all the time because we can't always get to a golf course, but ideally the first session I would like with a player is on the golf course. That's, I mean, that's in an ideal situation because when we see someone on the driving range, like it's the most comfortable environment you're going to see someone in. Um, You know, I've, I've warmed up for games of golf myself and just, you don't miss. Right. And you see that on the, on tour ranges as well. Every single one of those guys should be leading a PGA Tour event. Yet when you get onto the golf course, there's so many other factors that um, that come into play. So, you know, for, for me, I, I just have that conversation with a player. First things first to say, look, you know, if it's not the first or, or second session we have, please make it the third that we go on the golf course. Because if you're going to invest your time in getting better, um, then, then I think it's essential to actually see your student on the golf course. Because I've... 
I've seen so I, – I remember working with one guy who was like, I do not want to go on the golf course. I just want my swing, right? And I, I nearly said no to that player. I was kind of like, look, I just – I don't do that. But I, I wanted to help him. His swing did need work. So going on the course in the first kind of month may have been a little bit not pointless, but if his goal was golf swing, then let's let's go out on the range. So, yeah, really over the top swing kind of stuff. We We got it to pretty good. We got it to fairly neutral. And I said, look, for this lesson, let's go on the course, please. Anyway, we get on the second hole and, and the tees are, it's a little dog leg left hole and the tees are, are, are kind of facing straight and the, the hole goes this way. And there's a big tree that overhangs this tee block. So you've got to aim that way on the on the tee block. And he lines it up and he start, and he, you know, sits, sits there and he is aiming so like as square as you can to this tree Right. And I'm like, that's interesting. So I, I don't step in when that happens. I want them to make the mistake and then ask them the question. Right. So they can learn. Snipes it into this tree. And I go, oh, that's interesting. And I say, well, what'd you do there, mate? He said, I blocked it. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Tee, tee up another one. Took a video of him and then said, where do you think that looks like you're aiming? Oh, straight into the tree. And I'm like, okay. So we think about your tendency in your golf swing. Why do you come over the top of it? right? Pretty obvious. You aim right and you have to come over the top of it. So for a month, right, he's been working on this in into out move, let's call it. When in fact, if I had got him on the golf course straight away, we would have gone, hey, your alignment's a little bit off. Let's work on that because that influences this. Um, but you know, he wanted golf swing and this is the this is the, 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 the trials and tribulations we, we face on a daily basis when coaching students. Um, because the, I don't care if he was over the top, if you're aiming right, you have to be over the top. You literally have to, right? So anyone aiming left kind of has to cut it. So it's, it's just one of those things, right? That the communication with the student and the trust needs to be there as well. But, um, but yeah, what, once, once you can talk to the student about all of that, I, I just, I like to really have the student understand why they hit poor shots and what they need to do in order to hit the ball better, uh, whether that's short game, putting. I want them to understand their flaws and understand what they need to do to, to, to better those flaws. But also, when the flaw happens on the golf course, when the ball goes left, right, if that's their miss, why did the ball go left? And even if they say, I don't know, right, that's fine because they might not know. But you have to then bring them back and say, well, what's your, what's your tendencies? Right. Oh, I get stuck underneath it. And when I get stuck underneath, I flip the face, closes the face, ball goes left. Okay, cool. So what do we need to do more of? Right. So because on the golf course, like there's so many other elements that we can't just focus on technique. Um, but we need to we need to understand that when something happens, like a ball going left, even if you don't feel it, even if you think, yeah, oh, I thought I made a pretty good move there. You didn't. You need to feel more. You need to feel feel it even more. So. Just understanding that is is crucial, and I think that's you know, that's when when golfers can be their own coach on the golf course. I think that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate, right? Because that's when your golf IQ starts to go up, and you know, you're four holes in, snap hooking everything. It doesn't take you until the, you know, I tried this on the 18th tee and it finally worked. It's like you should have tried that on the fifth tee, right? Like, um, so yeah, that's. I just try and have all my players try and completely understand what they need to do and how to and how to improve it. That's awesome. So kind of tying in with the on-course instruction, something that I know that you're really passionate about is on developing on-course games. 
and you've done a lot of that in your career. I'd like you to give the listeners just an overview of what made you start developing those games and which ones you give your students the most of and how often you tell them to do them. Yeah, so I guess that kind of brings it into the like the ebook I've created. So like I, I was when when we're talking about practice, there's there's block practice, random practice, competitive practice. And pretty much, you know, ninety eight percent of golfers on the planet just skip the the you know, the random and the competitive and they they're on the range and they're hitting seven iron after seven iron all the time and then they get on the course and they don't hit a seven iron until the sixth hole, right? Um, wins into off the left and they have to hit like a little low draw to, you know, to, to get away from that wind. So, you know, if, if you're missing the, the, the competitive stuff and the, and the random stuff, that's, that's when you, you know, people say, you know, can't take my range game to the course. The question I always say to people is, does your practice replicate what you do on the, on, on the golf course? The answer is no, because you, you do not hit 57 irons on the golf course. So we have to replicate. Um, yeah, we have to be smart with our practice. We, of course, have to stand there and beat some balls and work on some movements. But once you, like I said before, once you start to feel, that's what Siegman did so well, once you start to feel that your your movement's good and you're hitting, you're hitting the ball flush, that's when you have to make it harder. That's when you have to start narrowing your targets or you know, hitting some shapes so that you, not, not, not necessarily because you have to hit shapes on the course, but if you need to go around a tree, you need to know how to do that. So when it comes to on course, yeah, I, so I, so, sorry, yeah, I created this ebook and, and it's got, it's 40 performance games, um, 10 for each skill. So 10 for long game, 10 for short game, 10 for putting and 10 for on course. So for, for players who are keen to move out of that block practice, um, you know, where the alignment sticks are on the ground and, and everything's nice and easy, that's where we start to bring in some you know, games or challenges, as I like to call them, to make practice a little bit harder. Uh, so, you know, on the golf course, yeah, I've got 10 games on the golf course that I've written up. And, um, you know, one of, them's, one of them could be like a, um, like the Eliminator game, which I, I got from Game Light Training, from Ian Highfield and Game Light Training, where you literally eliminate one side of the course. So, you, there's, you know, there's a scoring system on that. Um, so, if, if you're a... If you're a hooker of the golf ball, if you, you know, if you hook the golf ball to the left, you might want to eliminate the left side, which then brings in that, um, I guess, the, the feeling that you may be working on in your swing to try and move the ball possibly from left to right, or at least to, you know, get that swing direction a little bit more neutral to, to hit a straight ball. Um, so with that fear in the back of your mind thinking, you know, okay, left is a two-shot penalty on this hole. Um, I need to figure out a way to, uh, you know, at least hit it maybe to the right. So that's that's also working on um, yeah, some core strategy stuff, but also it's working on your golf swing or working on your your your, your swing tendencies that that come up, and that just makes the game harder, right? Because now when you're playing the game in, in real time, you've got the whole fairway. You don't just have the right side of the fairway. So all of a sudden, now the target looks a little bit bigger. And um, look, it's it's not easy. It's not easy to play these games because that requires work. It requires discipline. And a lot of golfers like to make the game of golf easy. So I, I just I just like to play some challenges with players and make it a little bit harder for them and make it fun, right? It's, it's got to be fun. We, we can't just... Um, I, I see too many players, you know, when they're on course practicing, they, they've got three balls on the tee. And I'm like, well, what, what ball counts right now? 
right? It's always the first one because the first one's the one that you that you have to count. So any ball after that, all you're doing is reacting to what happened with the first one. Yeah, I always do it with putting. Like I see so many people on the putting green with five golf balls and they, they hit their first putt short. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do on the next one? Like, it's pretty obvious, right? You just have to either take the club back a little bit further, which the brain's pretty smart. It's going to do it. So maybe two balls on the putting green maximum, but not not five. Just you're not working on anything. So, um, yeah, games and challenges are always interesting. Um, but you've got to be pretty disciplined to keep at it um, and understand the benefits of it. That makes sense. Putting that type of pressure on yourself, especially to pull it off, reminds me of so have you read The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, I think it is? I think that was, at least for me, that was one of those books I read late in high school, maybe early college, and really flipped the switch. Uh, didn't do much for my golf game because I was injured. But nonetheless, as far as life goes, uh, you realize you can figure out a lot of things once you understand the components to them. As far as teaching your students the components and being able to adjust, that's something important, it sounds like, for you. When you have a student um, who's playing in a tournament, do you have them take a swing video before they go on to play? Do you have them do any swing work beforehand? And the reason I ask is because uh, Cooper last year when he was playing would take a swing video, not for like fixing anything or anything like that, but just to document, hey, here's where I am as of today. And it was in some ways I can easily see how that would be degenerative for a student to look at their video, look at their video back. Oh gosh, it's right before my round. I got to fix it. But in hindsight, it was nice to be able to have that because when we looked back, we saw a tournament, a qualifier he played in and he won the qualifier and then a tournament he played in later. You could see the inklings of a small issue in his swing uh, that was developing that ended up resulting in some major misses. So all that to say, when you have a student who's getting ready for a tournament, what's your rules around swing videos what depends on the student like you, your example there was was you know you could have a student looking at swing videos and obsessing over technique um they they could play very poorly but they could also play really well um there's there's nothing to say that that thinking of technique on the course is bad it depends right i i actually i struggle to think too much externally when i play I like to have a feel because I feel like if I if I don't have a feel, say on my downswing, for example, I'm like, well, if I'm trying to hit a big swooping draw, like I want to feel that club kind of behind me and you know that club face kind of perhaps rolling over through impact. Like that's just that's just me. Um, whereas, yeah, I think if you're on the range and and you're, I, I think both work. I think both work is the answer, uh, and I just think it depends on the individual. Um, I understand the documentation part 100%. I mean, there's a reason why you get the track man out when you're playing really, really well to, to document what is it that I'm doing really well? What's my path numbers? What's my angle of attack? And then, you know, you go and play in wind for a week and you come back onto the range and everything's squirting out to the right. And you go, hey, your angle of attack's two degrees down more than when we were playing really good two weeks ago. And that's just that's just because of your environment, because you have to stay on top of the ball a little bit more and hit down on the thing a little bit more. Yeah, our environment plays such a huge role in our golf swing that not a lot of people understand. Yeah, a, a wet day where you have to pinch the, the ball off the turf a little bit more is going to increase a certain amount of things and it's going to make the body move just a little bit differently. Um, 
than when it's a you know when it's a a, a different day. So um, I think there was a it was a podcast I listened to with um, with Kari Webb who who said there was one tournament in her whole career where she didn't have a swing thought during a tournament. Um, so I mean, if basically one of the best female golfers um, that's ever played the game has a swing thought on the golf course, I think it's I think it's okay to say that it's okay to have it. Maybe three or four swing swing thoughts don't work very well, um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I've heard many times that one to two, maximum two, um, can work very well for certain players. That's perfect. One of the other thing I had a question about specifically when it came to tournaments is we've talked about your run and all the coaches that you met, but what we didn't talk about as part of that was the actual tournaments that your player played in. What was that process like as a coach there? What were you doing for him? And then as you were following along, what was what was the process like from the outside looking in as far as how your player's mentality? Because these Monday cues are hard. We have buddies that play in these, uh, especially when you're trying to get status somewhere. They can be pressure packed and you know you have to play a really good round of golf. Yeah, well, th- thankfully for Gav, who's um, he's played in a bunch of big tournaments. Um, so, you know, the nerves weren't there like, you know, like a rookie would be, for example. Um, I know I'd be probably, you know, I wouldn't be too good in those environments just because I've probably never been in them, you know. Um, I've been in my, my fair share of kind of pressure environments, but nothing like a, a Monday you know, pre, pre-queue to, to get into a PGA Tour event. Um, but also that's why I coach for a living, right, and, and not play. But, uh, look, he was pretty relaxed. Um, I mean, we started off we started off the trip shooting some some twos and three-unders, three-under, four-under, and played pretty, not aggressive, but not too conservative either, and eventually found out that if unless you're shooting six-under, you're not getting a sniff. So it, it's kind of a, a little bit against the way that I would play or teach golf in regards to, like, go at every flag and hit driver everywhere. Um, be super aggressive. But the reality was for these pre-cues, you have to shoot seven or eight. So you may as well try and shoot. You may as well try and go at most most flags and be as aggressive as possible because three under gets you the same as two over. So uh, we, we nearly qualified for the final, the final one we played to get into, uh, what was the one Tony Finau one um, in Minnesota? 3M. 3M, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... We were we we were six under on on the sixteenth tee, uh, so we were like you know we, we both knew that one birdie could get this done. We hit the par five and two, but we we kind of had a a, a bit of an in between number for the second shot and went for the hard a hard seven instead of like a softy six and kind of had an eighty footer for eagle and three putted that and then three putted the par three from again eighty foot and just hit a little pull draw instead of a instead of a straight ball at a at a front right pin and you know shot shot five under and that was that was all she wrote but you know funnily enough seven under got into a playoff so you were never guaranteed anyway and but you know the mentality you know but for the mondays was yeah i mean if we if we were to ever do that again it would just be aggressive from the start and, and you have to you know you can't get down on yourself and that's where i think gav did a really good job of you can't say to yourself, well, this isn't for me if you don't get through a Monday queue. Like, you know, if we look at a bell curve of scores over the year, um, for those that don't know a bell curve, right, like you've got your best 
on one side, your worst on another, and then you've got your your average in the middle. Um, you know, his best for the year might be yeah eight or nine under. Um, so to be out to to have to go out and shoot eight, like that's the best round of the year. You've just got to you know, randomly. It's just got to happen. Luck's got to be on your side. A lot of things have got to happen for you to shoot that. Um, there was one event we started bogey, bogey, bogey. You, we literally could have just walked off after three holes. Um, we fought it back and shot one over, but it was, yeah, it's it's the reality of it. You smile and you go get a big dirty pizza after it and have a laugh, right? And you can do that in America. You can't do that in Australia, but there's some good pizzas in America, I'll tell you right now. I know what you mean. I Cooper and I once uh, caddied for him in a tournament. Uh he played terrible. We went out and we were like, we are finding the spiciest food that we can find because we want to punish ourselves so much for how painful that was. Uh, and we did. It was uh, it was ridiculously spicy. So I know exactly. I mean, it's nice to it's nice to have that after a round. As far as going on that um, trip with Gav, as far as all of that goes. I know that when you go on a trip, you're traveling around like that. It can be exhausting, especially week after week after week. What did he do to help keep himself a in shape, uh, be like rested and like not absolutely having his body zonked? And also, as far as like golf swing wise, is there much that you worked on during that time, or is it just a tweak here, a tweak there, as necessary? So staying in shape was difficult considering you guys sell cheese in a can, right? So um, we we, um, no, we we did okay, put on a couple of pounds, but it wasn't too bad. But, you know, we had we had a – I mean, the hard thing about the PGA Tour qualifying was it's, it's quite taxing mentally because, you know, say it was a Thursday, right? So you'd get into the event because obviously for, for those that don't know, the PGA Tour qualifiers, you've got to qualify for two rounds, right? You've got to – you got a Thursday qualify into the Monday. So, you know, we'd get into the into the state that we needed to be or to the city that, that it was being held on. Maybe, you know, we'd fly on Monday. So there's a day's flying. Um, you know, we'd get out on, on Tuesday and have a look at the course, do some practice around the greens and just have a look at it, jump in a cart. And then Wednesday, um, yeah, we pretty much played the course on the Wednesday and then played on Thursday. And then we, we got through every Thursday qualifier, which was good. And then we had obviously Friday, Saturday, Sunday to kind of either do something or rest up or whatever. And the hard thing about, you know, trying to do it cost effectively as well, right? You, you know, we, we didn't have a hire car every time. We just used Ubers. So we had a, we had a fair bit of time in hotel rooms. Uh, we actually picked up pickleball, which was good. We, we haven't, we, we didn't know what pickleball was here in Australia. That was, that almost made me quit golf. I just wanted to play pickleball. But, um, you know, that was so that was cool. We we were doing that and um just seeing seeing the city and but come Saturday, Sunday again we're we're right into it, um, getting ready for the Monday. And then, yeah, if there's a Thursday qualifier uh, the next week you're on a plane Tuesday Tuesday morning. So um yeah, a few weeks we had some off weeks where um Gav has some, some family friends in Oklahoma. So we we would and I've got family in Naples, uh so I, yeah, I'd go to Naples for a week and he'd go to Oklahoma for a week and we'd kind of um, chill or I'd go and see one of the coaches that I was seeing. And um, so it was it, it was fine. It was fine. But in regards to golf swing stuff, yeah, we, look, we, we, we had one moment there where we didn't play very well. We were hitting it kind of all over the place. And 
Um, the way Gav works is when Gav says, mate, I'm done, I'm, I'm done with this mess, that's when he wants to change it. Sometimes for me, I'm like, yeah, mate, we need to work on this. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's okay. It feels okay. But when he, when he comes to me and the player wants to get it changed up, that's when it, that's when the best work happens because it's him wanting it. Right. So Oklahoma, 44, 45 degrees. A couple of months ago, we're sitting out on the range making these changes. And um, yeah, the next two, maybe three events, um, he just flushed it. He flushed it and he's still still riding that that high of, of what we worked on. And um, yeah, he's got his tendencies. And again, we've just got to understand when that tendency gets a little bit off and what we need to do to get back on track. So yeah. Going back to the to the games, I had a lot of practice games when I was practicing in college. Um, but I would always have this one putting drill that I did before I left the course. And sometimes it would take me 10 minutes. Sometimes it would take me three hours. But I'm interested to hear whether or not you want your players to actually finish the drill. Because sometimes when I'm leaving the practice, I want to feel that sense of accomplishment that I did that drill. And if I'm there for three hours, four hours, when it's getting dark out night, and then I'm frustrated, I have to leave because I'm obviously burned out. I don't have that sense of accomplishment that I'm looking for in that drill. So do you just prescribe a certain amount of time to do that drill or? Yeah. So it's interesting you say that. So, I mean, I, the, the, the two thoughts that I have there is um, you can either use a time, time limit or you could, um, or depending on the player, like yourself, Gav was like that. So we, we would do a drill just to, to work on and, and figure out green, green reading for um, anything inside of like 10 foot at new venues. And I would just set up a, um, just a compass drill, um, three, four, five feet at north, south, east, west on roughly a one and a half to two degree slope. So that, the, you know, those, those five footers, if you pull it and it's a right to left part, you're going to miss. So, um, and he would want to complete that. There was no time limit there. He just said, I'm, I'm here until till I complete. And he, he's the same. He wants that accomplish, accomplishment, same as you. Um, for an amateur golfer, I might say, look, yeah, because – there were times where we sat there for quite a while, um, and there was one. There was one point I said, "Mate, like let's let's stop doing this because now it's it's becoming like you've got the speed, you've got the you know the reads. It's just some of the like one putt out of twelve, you're not hitting your line." And he was just like, "No, nah, I'm continuing." And I was yeah in my head as a coach, I'm like, "Well, now yeah, obviously there's heaps of stuff that you can get over. There's frustrations, there's you know the heat, all that kind of stuff." But as a coach, I'm looking at that going, "Well." What are we now achieving? Yeah, are, are we actually achieving anything, or have we already achieved what we needed to, which was you know to figure out the speed and read for those short parts? But for Gav, it was that sense of accomplishment. That's what he wanted to to continue doing that drill for, and um, yeah, he he accomplished all of them. And um, but for an amateur golfer who's maybe off ten or fifteen or twenty or whatever handicap you are. Maybe put a time limit on it because accomplishing it might be, it might just be too hard. You might have a, it depends on the player's time, but you know, right. You've got 15 minutes to try and do this drill or you've got half an hour because the likelihood is once they start to get to that four, four feet mark, they're going to start to miss a couple. Um, especially if they're, yeah, especially with putting, especially if they haven't worked on their stroke and they're, they're, they, they don't know how to read a green or, yeah, they've got a pull bias or something like that in their stroke. So um, definitely for the amateur, I, I think there comes a time when it's a little bit pointless 
for an amateur golfer to just do it because you've got to complete it. Um, yeah, m- my thought with that is always, well, why are you missing, right? Like Gav, Gav's very good at hitting. His start, he's a fantastic putter, hits his start lines a lot, reads the green pretty good and has good speed. So he's doing the drill for a different reason, whereas an amateur who's, you know, like I said, always pulling shots, it's like, dude, like, there's no point sitting here for an hour and a half trying to complete it because you're still going to pull it when you get on the course. Um, yeah, you would need to, to go and work on some stroke or work on some posture stuff or whatever's causing the pull might be a bit more beneficial for that player. Then for 15 minutes, let's see if you complete, if you can complete that, um, you know, that, that compass drill. That's, that's probably what I would say to that, depending on the skill level of the golfer. That's cool to see how that plays into different golfer psychologies. Cause I know that we were at a tournament one time and he had to do this drill. I'm like, dude, we, we're teeing off and we're teeing off in seven minutes. We kind of need to get to the first tee. No, I have to finish this drill. Uh, and he finished the drill. And so, but he, he could be that way. And I know lots of other guys can be that way. As far as when it comes to um, drills and how they affect your swing and other things, something that I've learned as I've gotten older is kind of the synergies of self-corrective drills. I'll rephrase the artificial intelligence nature of uh, trying to accomplish something. So as opposed to thinking about a technical movement or something like that, trying to make a three footer over and over, eventually, uh, especially if it's a straight one, eventually you have to get that face uh, square to the hole if you're going to do that. And similarly, like when it comes to, I know that Mike Carroll said stuff about it and I've noticed it actually in my own game using the stack system, uh, besides my swing speed, I was swinging pretty fast already, but besides my estimated swing speed going up, I haven't hopped on um, a track man in a little bit, but besides that increasing a lot, I've also noticed sort of these efficiencies that naturally have to be built into my swing because I'm like, oh, I got my goal. My one goal when swinging this is to swing as fast as possible. I need to get that number to go up. And similarly, um, like when I'm doing certain drills, sometimes I don't even worry about technique. I'm like, my only goal is to make this. And if I can just do this over and over, then that's good. So from your perspective, you have these um, awesome drills where you go out on the course and we'll put a link to your ebook in the show notes. As far as doing those drills out there, what sort of, are there synergies that you see that come with that as far as like improving like technical elements or also just like when you're getting ready for a tournament or you're, when you're in a tournament and putting yourself in those situations, do you see those synergies developing there instead? Yeah, I, I think this is an interesting one. And, and I, you know, I feel I still need to talk to a few coaches um, about like, is, you know, if someone can't do something, you've got to ask yourself, is it because of technique or is it because um, they've never felt the pressure of that before? Right. So, you know, w- with these, with these games or, or whether it's, um, you know, whether it's practice or whether it's playing, like did someone, you know, did someone chunk their chip shot or blade their bunker because mentally they were thinking, you know, oh, this is a back flag, you know, I need to land it here. I can't go over because it's, it, it, you know, it's dead over the green. So does that, is, is them thinking that way affecting their technique or is it that they haven't practiced that shot under the pressure that they're feeling there? And that's, I think, you know, that's that's what we have to still figure out, right, is is what is causing um, the technical breakdown. 
Is it purely the golfer has no idea how to move the golf club in a, in a way that will produce the shot they're trying to hit? Or is it that they haven't practiced it under, under duress? Um, can be both. Obviously, the more pressure you add, it could, you know, it could actually pull out some of the technical issues. Um, I, I mean, I, I know when I've, you know, I, I miss the ball right um, in my own in my own goal swing. So, if there's water right, I, I know that that will bring out and consciously have me thinking about the movement I don't want to make. Um, but I think that's where the player has to adapt. Like I, I like, I like hooking it off the water. If that's the case, like if I'm like, man, I just I can't have this ball go to the right. Um, I can just feel like I can just feel like I just hook it off the water. At least I know it's going in, in the opposite direction. And that's just adapting, right? But that's obviously a skill. That's that's a skill on the range to know how to hook it. You know, so yeah, players will think, well, I don't want to. I don't want to practice hitting a hook. Why would I want to try that? I want to try and hit it straight. I'm like, well, straighter shots the hardest shot in golf. It's actually easier to to know how to move it a different way, so that when you're when you are faced with that um, with that shot, you know. I think Adam Young does a really good job of this stuff, right? With with his strike plan and you know, how do you, how do you enter the sand three inches behind the ball? How do you enter it two inches behind the ball? You know, how do you catch ball first? Um, yeah, all of these little things are skills in and amongst the technique that you use. And I think that's really important to practice and pretty much why, like I'm a better golfer now and I don't practice anywhere near as much as I used to as a trainee, but I'm a much better golfer now than, than I ever was. Um, purely because I think I know more. I just know about the game of golf more. I know what shot is required at at, you know, at a certain situation or in a certain situation. Um, whereas the amateur golfer is still thinking of how do I, how do I draw the golf ball and, you know, turning with my left shoulder under my chin or, or any of that kind of stuff. Last question we ask every guest is if you could tell yourself one thing as a junior golfer, what would it be? In this case, uh, you Played junior golf, but you didn't necessarily play competitively. So what I would ask you is, one, if you were a junior golfer that, or if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer, uh, what would you tell yourself? Just, you know, you're playing for fun. And then second, if you could tell a junior golfer one thing, get it through their mind, what would it be? So, I mean, I've, I think I've always known this, but, yeah, junior golfers need to have fun, right? That They need to be let. They need to be let to do what they want to do, right? So, like, you know, if they want to hit a flop shot, let them hit a flop shot. Don't you have to? You, you don't say you have to do bump and runs. Like bump and runs, people need to understand that bump and runs for kids are, is boring, right? They want to practice the most stupid, hardest shot. Um, you know, I, I think I think the good players that I've I've spoken to have all said. You know, when they were kids, yeah, they had putting comps on the putting green for Mars bars. They had chipping comps. They put it under a tree on dirt to a tight flag. That's how you learn skills. And I think, you know, one thing in golf instruction now is, you know, we, we can't get too bogged down in technique when we're so young because, you know, fundamentals are great, yes, but, you yeah, kids are going to grow. And their swings will change literally every year for the next 10 years. So, you know, saying that your swing has to be a certain way when you're 11, that swing's going to be completely different when you're 15. And 
the the eleven year old might not even be able to move the club in the way that the coach wants, right? So I think I think you've got to really adapt, um, and just let the kid be a kid, um, and like I said, train a lot of skills. That was probably that was probably that was probably me as a coach saying to kids and parents, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just on that, I would say from for, for parents, stay stay out of your junior's way. Stop getting involved. It's literally it's the coach's worst nightmare. You're not the expert in this case. We want you to be supportive, one hundred percent. We need, we, you know, we need you to be supportive because juniors are going to play bad and they're and they're going to they're going to cry and they're going to they're going to be really upset. But you need to be the one who's you know not going over the reason they play bad on their car ride home. Right, take a take them to McDonald's and have a cheeseburger and make, make any bad game of golf seem like, you know, at the back end of a, ga- a bad game of golf, like only good things can happen. And that's when, you know, you come and see the coaches to why it's bad. And yeah, you know, as a parent, just be, just be there for your kid. Do not, you know, it, put it, put it this way. Here's, here's one thing that I, I really, you know, when I was coaching juniors, if your junior is looking back at you, that's them asking for approval. If, if a junior miss hits a shot and they look back straight at the parent, that's not a good thing, right? That's not a good thing because the junior is saying, yeah, oh crap, I hit a bad shot in front of dad or in front of mum. What are they going to say? They're going to be judging me. So, you know, when I, when I was coaching juniors back at my old club, I would, if, if any kid hit a poor shot, I'd just, good job. Let's go again. Yeah. See if you can see if you can top it into the ground. See if you can get it to stay in the ground when you top it. Yeah. Make make something of it. Don't don't say it's bad. Right. Don't say it's bad. That makes sense. That's perfect. I know playing junior golf, Cooper and I have both seen that. Uh, and even as adults playing golf, I know um, we both still uh, have been in tears. And so golf's one of those sports that can do it more uniquely than any other sport. So just one, one more thing on that. I think, I think, you know, juniors don't understand early on how hard this game is. So they, they don't understand that, you know, how hard it is to hit a good golf shot. They don't appreciate a good golf shot. Um, all they're thinking is, you know, I missed the green or I'm, I've hit it into the bunker, which is bad. I've hit it in the water, which is bad. Um, so we, we, we need to change. We need to change that. You know, we, we need to say to the kids, it's okay. Like, you, you're still learning the game. You know, chuck Tiger on TV and see him in his prime hitting it, you know, Pebble Beach swearing and snap hooking it into the rocks. Like, the best in the world, the greatest player of all time, in my opinion, um, still hits bad shots. Your, your junior, who's nowhere near close to being the best golfer of, of all time, is going to hit, yeah, all these shots poorly. So, it's okay. It's it's fine. Like that's golf. That's so true. It's one of those things. Growing up, too, good golf feels so unattainable sometimes because you see these guys shoot such low scores, and you think they must be hitting it perfect every time. I don't feel that way when I'm hitting the ball. Therefore, I can't do it. And it's still, I still think about Lou Stagner posted uh, a chart of Austin Greaser's dispersion on a track man on a range, and it was sixty yards plus side to side and of course you have the twitter knuckleheads are commenting that's not that's not real that's not a top player but people don't realize how much uh golfers miss especially when you have the tv running and all you're getting are the highlights 
of everybody hitting every perfect shot ever. So I, that is a sentiment that I'm wholeheartedly understand. I'm glad that when you're teaching people, you're going to be instilling that in them. Um, we appreciate you taking the time to meet with us. Where can people reach out to you on social media if they want to? Where can they get your ebook? And I think you also teach on skills. What should they do to go through that and how will they know if they're a good fit with you? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, social handles, pretty much everything's under my name, you know, at Ryan Moke Golf. Um, just recently joined Twitter actually, um, just thanks to Mike Carroll from Fit for Golf. He was just like, you know, are you, are you on Twitter? And I was like, I didn't understand it. It's been it's been around for ages. I didn't understand it, so I didn't really get into it and it's addicting. Man, I'm glad I did. We just want to give a special thanks to Ryan for taking the time to join us again. I want to encourage you to go to ryanmokegolf.com.au to take a look at his performance practice ebook as it has a lot of the tools to help you get better at playing golf on the golf course and obviously playing better tournament golf. Thanks for joining us today. Please do us a big favor and like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so we can help others learn how to play better tournament golf. You can find us online at thetournamentcode.com, on Instagram at thetournamentcode, and on Twitter at Tournament Code. As always, feel free to reach out to us at those places or email us at daniel at thetournamentcode.com and cooper at thetournamentcode.com. We hope you join us as we continue to dive deeper in what it takes to play elite tournament golf.